It's the 1st of May, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, it's clinical trials regarding COVID-19. I reviewed them all this week, and it's been a lot of press releases, really from like the 20th to just yesterday, including the New England Journal. A lot of reports of concern to the rheumatologist because it concerns your drugs. And I'm going to review these in basically sort of a mini grand rounds weekly podcast. So if you're watching, you can actually see the screen, and I'm going to show you my slides. I, I think you'll find this uh, informative. If not, you can listen along at home, and that'll work as well. So let's start out by talking about, um, there we go. Let's start at this. This week in clinical trials. I think the issue here is that our patients are supposedly immunosuppressed. Our patients are presumably taking immunosuppressants, but yet we are telling them, do not stop your prednisone, do not stop your DMAR, do not stop your biologic in this COVID era. If you get infected, then give me a call and we can discuss. The interesting thing is that we've noticed very few of our patients being infected, very few of them in the ICU, and even fewer of them uh, dying from this coronavirus infection. So the question here is, do our diseases make our patients at risk? Does disease activity increase risk? Or is it the drugs that we use that can change risk, either help the patient or protect the patient? And there's actually some new information this past week that we should review. First, an update on the uh, room-covid.org registry, the COVID rheumatology registries, one going on worldwide, one done by ULAR. Combined, we're over a thousand patients, it looks like. Um, you go to the websites and this is the data you'll get. Uh, these are patients with our diagnoses, most of, the, most of whom have rheumatoid arthritis, next psoriatic arthritis or spondylitis, and next is lupus at about 12 or 8%. Uh, but these are patients who are infected with the coronavirus who've been enrolled in this registry. Uh, around 65%, two thirds of patients are female. Uh, in the worldwide registry, uh, nearly 30% are, are elderly. Uh, in the UR registry, it's almost 50%. And it looks like two thirds to 80% of patients are on DMARDs at the time they're enrolled. Um, in 22% uh, are on hydroxychloroquine, when you look at uh, biologic DMARD use, it's about 30 to 34% of patients enrolled are on a biologic. Jack's less common, steroids, about a third of patients. So far, we don't have any readout on this registry, but from the two registries and what's reported, about two thirds of the ULAR COVID patients have been hospitalized. And in the, in the um, uh, COVID-room registry, um, there's been a 9.2% of patients who have actually died from this infection. Again, this data needs to be verified. Yesterday, the New England Journal, Haberman et al, including Jose Scher, thank you Jose for sending this uh, preprint to me, um, reported its experience at the NYU Langone Medical Center, accumulating patients in the month of basically March, and they accrued 86 patients with IMIDs, immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, that includes RAPSA, psoriasis, AS, and IBD patients who were infected with the coronavirus or who were suspected as being infected. 
um, from this cohort, it looked like 16% of their patients were admitted to the hospital. Um, those who were admitted were more likely to be older, have hypertension, diabetes, and COPD when you compared them to the ambulatory patients. This rate of 16% is actually below, but yet on par with the New York City uh, Health and Hospital Corporation rate of about 29%. So in New York City, the epicenter of coronavirus infections, where there's a lot of deaths, like, you know, I don't think we have 80 deaths in Dallas. In New York, they're having three to 500 deaths a day. But anyway, the hospitalization rate in New York City is 29% currently. So this is low, meaning our patients aren't being hospitalized uh, at the same rate. It's either, certainly it's not more. If they were immunosuppression, you think it might be more. But then when you looked at the therapies that were reported <clears throat> in this New England Journal article, you can see patients who are on steroids, hydroxychloroquine, and methotrexate were more likely to be hospitalized. So for instance, methotrexate, amongst the hospitalized patients, 43% were on methotrexate. Amongst those that were ambulatory with their corona infection, only 15% were on methotrexate. So does that mean those patients are more likely to be hospitalized? Well, let's look at what happens when you use a JAK inhibitor or biologic agent or a TNF inhibitor. It looks like in those cases, patients are more likely to be ambulatory. So those who are on a biologic or JAK 50% of the hospitalized patients were on a biologic or JAK, but of the ambulatory patients, 76% on a biologic or JAK. If you look at TNF inhibitors, nearly half the patients who are ambulatory were on a TNF inhibitor, whereas 21% of the people hospitalized were on a TNF inhibitor. I look at this and say those who are on more advanced therapies, maybe better controlled, were more likely to be managed on in an outpatient ambulatory fashion. But the takeaway uh, point of this article from uh, Haberman et al. was that baseline biologic use was not associated with worse coronavirus infections. There are a few articles in uh, Annals of Rheumatic Disease and in JROOM uh, uh, looking at what happens when our patients have been um, affected by this. This particular report I'm showing you from Mathian uh, in Annals of Rheumatic Disease looks at 17 patients with the coronavirus infection um, and what happened to them. So these 17 patients, the, uh, they were all on hydroxychloroquine and they've been on hydroxychloroquine for an average of 7.3 years. These people were pretty severe uh, lupus patients. They had the antiphospholipid syndrome in four, C chronic kidney disease in eight, 12 on prednisone, seven on immunosuppressants. Again, 14 were admitted to the hospital, 13 of the 17 had viral pneumonia, 11 respiratory failure, five cases of, of, of of ARDS and three renal failure. So when they looked at these patients, eight of them, they had actually blood levels of hydroxychloroquine done and showed that they had uh, plasma concentrations ranging from 254 to 2095, a mean of 648, suggesting they had good, healthy uh, hydroxychloroquine levels, meaning they weren't undertreated. Um, all the patients either had their immunosuppressant drug interrupted or stopped 16 of the patients um, were, had no signs of lupus activity. Uh, and again, 14 were admitted, uh, and at the period of uh, follow-up, they had 36% uh, had been discharged, 50% were still hospitalized, and two had died. The bottom line of this report was, yes, even lupus patients on hydroxychloroquine can get severe COVID infection, and 14% of them may, in fact, die. Another report from uh, uh, Italy uh, was actually a, a survey. 
This is from uh, Tomaleri and colleagues um, reporting on a survey they did of 172 patients with large vessel vasculitis. And they asked them, you know, have you been affected? How have you been affected? Have you actually got the infection? Turns out there was only four infections, two of whom were hospitalized, two of whom were treated as an outpatient, all did well and recovered. But what they did notice was, uh, and it's unclear whether they had a, a higher rate, a lower rate, again, it's just, it's a random sampling, but they did good. Um, but they did note a fair amount of, uh, of problems with the lockdown on delivery of care. So there were, um, their infusions were affected, their, um, their uh, care was, was affected, but no one relapsed during this short period of observation. Six were unable to reach the infusion centers, two had to change to another sub-acute treatment, treatment, two went to another hospital, two were postponed. Uh, all in all, about 10% of patients were actually had inconvenience and in their care being affected by the COVID lockdown. An interesting report this week from Gold et al. in medical MMWR from the CDC looked at COVID-infected patients in Georgia in April of 2020. The main purpose of this report was to say, hey, guess what? One in four hospitalized patients with coronavirus had no recognized risk factors for severe COVID, meaning they weren't obese, they weren't diabetic, they didn't have heart disease, lung disease, et cetera. But 20, again, 26, 28, 30%, overall, um, almost one in, over one in four patients uh, had no background comorbidity. But they also did list uh, those, what was the number of people who had rheumatic or autoimmune conditions. And overall, it was low. It was 2.6% of the patients, very low in the 18 to 49 uh, age group, at 1%. Um, higher, 5% in the 50 to 64 group, and in the elderly over 65 was only 1.7. We're not very well represented among patients who are severely affected with the coronavirus. Another report came out this week in arthritis research and therapy. Vincent et al. did a meta-analysis of what happens when you stop biologics. This is important because all the guidelines are saying, continue the, the hydroxychloroquine, maybe you should hold the biologic, is there a consequence that I worry about that? What I think I'm going to show you and say here is that patients who are well controlled um, and are on therapy seem like they're doing fairly well in either avoiding or tolerating this infection. Uh, and I worry about patients who stop their biologics where they will go out of control, inflammation will rise and their outcomes will be poor. Well, in this particular meta-analysis has nothing to do with COVID by the way, it's just their, their RA and their spa patients 2,260 uh, patients, all of whom were in remission. The RA patients, most of whom were RA, had a DAS CRP of 1.6 to 2.3. Um, their BASDIs were less than two. The infection rate in those who tapered and stopped compared to those who were usual were not different. They were basically um, non-inferior to each other. But in fact, those who taper had a lower infection rate, 1.7 per 100 patient years looking at serious infections, and 2.6 per 100 patient years for those who are on usual care and maintain their biologic. So this says that, you know, you probably can get away with stopping the biologic without increasing the infection rate, and that may be okay to stop these drugs for people who you suspect as having the uh, coronavirus infection. So uh, I want to remind you about the ACR guidelines. They were published this week. Uh, uh, Ted Mickles from Omaha was the lead author on that. You can find that in arthritis and rheumatology. 
Again, the guidelines say do not stop therapies and people who you're seeing, that you should deliver normal care as you normally would. You should continue the ACE and ARBs for hypertension. You should not stop denosumab. You can extend it only as much as eight months. There's a serious downside to that. Um, but for those who are COVID exposed or undergoing testing, you should continue the sulfazalazine, hydroxychloroquine, non-steroidals, not sure what to do with the rest. And then if they are infected, you can continue the hydroxychloroquine, but stop sulfazalazine, methotrexate, leflinamide, immunosuppressants, JAKs, and biologics. You might could continue the IL-6 inhibitor because it's not knowing what to do there. And for unclear reasons to me, they say stop non-steroidals. It doesn't make any sense. There's no good reason to do that. But again, someone who's really sick with a positive infection, you're probably not going to use non-steroidals anyway. But I want to point out some, I, some other points that we get from the studies. First off, the NIH guidelines on the COVID-19 infection say if you have mild, moderate, or severe disease, there is no current recommended therapy, either antiviral or immunomodulatory for patients who have a COVID-19 infection. In this report, they do say there's no evidence favoring the use of hydroxychloroquine for prophylaxis or treatment of those who have the COVID-19 infection. If you're on steroids, you should probably continue it for a chronic disease. Don't use steroids to treat COVID. There's no evidence that it works. Use steroids to cover people in shock if that happens, or use steroids for your protocol that you have locally in managing ARDS. Some centers do like that, some do not. So again, I wanna show you some of the data on some of the drugs that uh, we use uh, and how they've been used in COVID, specifically chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, IL-6, um, IL-1 inhibition, JAX, and, um, and colchicine. So the VA trial, there was, you know, first there was this trial out of Marseille of 26 patients. I'm not covering that. I talked about that past. It was a horribly flawed trial, and it basically said, looks like hydroxychloroquine with or without uh, azithromycin may lower um, uh, sero or may lower viral titers or uh, have more seroconversions. But it was a badly done study. Um, this particular hydroxychloroquine VA trial is a preprint. It's not been peer-reviewed yet. Uh, it's a retrospective study of the VA experience of comparing those who are on hydroxychloroquine to those on hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin to those with no hydroxychloroquine. Again, these are COVID patients on these drugs for whatever reason. This is just sort of an analysis of data. The primary endpoint was whether they died or they needed mechanical ventilation. And it turns out that they had worse outcomes, worse COVID outcomes in patients who are on hydroxychloroquine. So for instance, if you look at deaths alone, there's 28% of, uh, of those on hydroxychloroquine died. 22% of those on hydroxychloroquine azithromycin died versus those not on hydroxychloroquine, 11%. Again, these are people within the VA system there was um, um, about the same ventilation across, across the board. Bottom line was a 2.6-fold higher risk of death with hydroxychloroquine. They summarize this by saying the findings from this retrospective study suggest caution when using hydroxychloroquine in COVID infections. And the last study on, on hydroxychloroquine is this chlorcovid study from Brazil. It's an interim analysis of 81 patients. They were supposed to enroll 444 patients with severe coronavirus infection. They stopped at 81 when they noticed that there were 11 deaths. In this particular trial, patients were either given high-dose uh, chloroquine, 600 milligrams BID for 10 days, or a lower dose of 900 milligrams on the first day and then 450 every day for four days. Um, of those in the hydroxychloroquine high-dose group, 
they tend to be older and tend to have 12% versus zero in those on the usual dose and then have more cardiovascular disease, 18% versus 0%. Um, and, and these patients, you know, the bottom line here is, will these drugs cause QT prolongation? They looked at that. In fact, it was higher in the high-dose group, 19% versus 11% in the low-dose group. But you know what? If you had QT prolongation, it was not associated with death or cardiovascular outcomes or torsades, the point, arrhythmias, which you might expect. It turns out that the people who died or more likely died who those who had pre-existing cardiovascular disease. And the people who died were pro also those who were, who were older. So it may not be the cardiac effects of chloroquine. It may be that chloroquine in elderly people with cardiovascular disease may not actually be a good idea. They said skepticism towards the enthusiastic claims about chloroquine use should, should perhaps curb its exuberant use. So should you use these drugs? Again, there's a potential for their use because in vitro studies have shown that they may have antiviral activity through the mechanism by which they work. Um, and the Marseille study said you might have more seroconversions. And you know what? The ACR and the NICE guidelines and the German guidelines say it's okay to continue hydroxychloroquine. The problem is that there are randomized control trials of antimalarials that failed in treating influenza or in preventing influenza, failed in treating dengue, chikungunya, and Ebola, that there have been studies showing no benefit in HIV, and there's one study showing HIV, showing an, a worsening of chikungunya virus infection, at least acutely. There's a studies from China showing no differences in seroconversion rates if you were on hydroxychloroquine or not. The Brazil study said you had more deaths on chloroquine and the VA study said they also had more deaths on hydroxychloroquine. The NIH guidelines are more judicious, saying there's no evidence for favoring their use at all. Um, and recently, Health Canada and the FDA came out with a, a, a recommendation, a communique to the public saying, don't use this drug unless you're part of a clinical trial or in a hospital. But to use it outside of that would not be a good idea. Now, IL-6 inhibitors are in the news. Uh, we had a report this week about the two studies with IL-6 inhibitors. The idea is that you want to prevent, especially the cytokine storm, which can be a terminal event. Cytokine storm, macrophage activation syndrome, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or the hemophagocytic syndrome, HLH, they're all the same thing. It's a cytokine storm induced by CD8 cells unable to, to lyse APCs and turn off a, an immune response. Instead, you have a sustained an amplified immune activation with a lot of cytokines being produced, um, typified and driven by gamma interferon, uh, and that leads to the cytokine storm. High fevers, hypotension, altered mental status. You should suspect this when people who are not doing too bad develop pancytopenia, severe LFT elevations, and hyperferritinemia. Other markers here are high LDH, high CD25, soluble CD25, high IL-6 levels, very high CRP, a dropping uh, SED rate because they have lower fibrinogen levels. They can develop a coagulopathy with D-dimers. Um, this has a high mortality when it happens. The treatment of the cytokine storm syndrome is so far IL-6 inhibitors, but there are trials with IL-1 inhibitors and amipalumab and other drugs that are usually used to treat macrophage activation. So let's talk about IL-6 inhibitors. As you know, there is a cardiac issue here or is there? Uh, up to 20% of patients on IL-6 inhibitors 
may develop a hyperlipidemia, but yet the observation has been so far that there's been no increase in MACE levels. I'll point to two different studies, one a claims data analysis and two the INTRAC trial, tocilizumab against uh, etanercept followed for three years, no increase in MACE events uh, despite lipids going up. Um, so that's a concern. Um, but IL-6 inhibitors may very well work. And uh, this is really based on a study that I've shown here from China, Zhu et al, 21 patients with severe hospitalized ventilator-assisted COVID-19 patients. Um, and they had all had high CRPs, high IL-6 levels. But when tocilizumab was given, guess what? They all rapidly improved clinically. Their fever went away. Their labs got better. And 19 out of 21 were discharged within two weeks. Very impressive. But now we have clinical trials going on. Um, uh, Regeneron and Sanofi issued a press release of uh, one of the early results of their Cerulemab study, 358 hospitalized patients with COVID. Uh, they were either given placebo or high dose Cerulemab, 400 milligrams, or usual dose, 200 milligrams. And they compared the outcomes in a phase two trial of those who had severe disease, which is about 28%, or those with critical disease, about half the patients, critical being they were intubated in an ICU. Now, while many of these patients were discharged, 80%, the 10% did die in this study and 10% were hospitalized. Um, the, you know, the table I'm showing you on the right here shows that the primary endpoint um, was met with ceruleumab. Placebo patients were only able to um, reduce their CRP in only 21% um, uh, uh, reduction with placebo. But with ceruleumab, it had a 77 to 79% reduction, and that was the primary endpoint. But when you looked at other things like death um, or ventilator assistance, it's really different. So placebo patients, 55% um, uh, of them died. If you were on ceruleumab, 46% um, died if you had um, um, severe disease. But if you had critical disease, only 32% died or on a, a ventilator, suggesting that only the critical patients are going to benefit from getting um, the high dose of uh, ceruleumab. So again, a preliminary result, it's got a lot of holes in the way it was written up. Um, I'll just say it's encouraging data for ceruleumab. More encouraging data came about this week with a report from France where 129 patients with moderate severe COVID-19 pneumonia were treated with um, standard of care plus or minus tocilizumab. The primary endpoint that they looked at was either death or ventilation at day 14. And the bottom line was no numbers, no data. They say that there were significantly fewer deaths and requirements for ventilator assistance in the tocilizumab group, suggesting that that may, and so they're gonna write that up. It might look good. We need to see that, but this is very preliminary data and it's hard to say where this goes. I think. This seems to work because really we're not treating coronavirus, we're treating the damage and preventing the damage incurred by the severe inflammation that may occur. IL-1 inhibitors are in clinical trials, both anakinra and canakinumab. There was a report also this week from Mustopolis in Annals of Rheumatic Disease. It's a, it's a case report uh, and it says a 70-year-old female with a five-year history of cryopyrin-associated periodic syndrome or CAPS that was proven by genetic testing she was being treated with canakinumab, 150 milligrams every eight weeks, last given on March 15th. 10 days later, the patient develops a fever of 37.5, malaise, um, had a known exposure and a positive SARS-CoV-2 test. 
Um, white count was 4.3. Sed rate was, a CRP was high at, at nine milligrams per deciliter. 12 days later, the patient had her symptoms resolved and the SARS-CoV test was now negative, suggesting that our patients with inflammatory disorder on a biologic may have a less, a more benign course and less, and certainly not a severe outcome. This is encouraging, but it's an N of one. It's hard to say what it means. Lastly, an interesting report about baricitinib. You know, baricitinib may work because it's been shown to inhibit AAK1 and G-associated kinases, two important regulators of endocytosis, and endocytosis is the means by which the um, coronavirus is going to bind to the ACE2 receptors and via endocytosis gain entry into the cell where it's going to do its damage. Moreover, a JAK inhibitor has the advantage of uh, decreasing uh, cellular activation and cytokine signaling uh, and overall decrease in inflammation. So we have one trial that's out there, um, and that trial is called, a, it's uh, authored by Cantini, also came out this week. Um, they treated 12 patients, 12 consecutive patients who were hospitalized with a COVID, and, and they were COVID positive, hospitalized with x-ray proven pneumonia. 12 consecutive patients were treated with baricitinib, four milligrams a day, plus antiviral therapy with ritonavir, lopinavir for two weeks. And then the outcomes were measured in two weeks. They have a control group where the 12 patients that were treated before these 12 baricitinib patients were enrolled. And those people were given the same antiviral therapy, but they were getting hydroxychloroquine, 400 milligrams for two weeks. Again, there was really no SAEs in this trial. There was one patient who had really high LFTs in the 250 to 600 to, to, to uh, 300 range, presumed to be due to antiviral therapy. So what happened when you got hydroxychloroquine or baricitinib on a background of antiviral therapy? Guess what? The hydroxychloroquine control group did not do well. They had no significant changes in their clinical status or their labs, but the baricitinib group had significant improvement in CRP levels, uh, in uh, lymphopenia uh, improved, ICU admissions were zero in the baricitinib group and four in the control group. Discharges were higher in the baricitinib group, 58% versus 8% in those in the control or hydroxychloroquine group. Encouraging first step data that should drive um, the use of, of this in future trials. Um, Colchicine, as you know, is in going into a clinical trial that was started by the Montreal Heart Institute, UCSF and NYU. They're gonna enroll 600 patients the idea here is give this to early patients, um, treat them with 0.5 milligrams BID for three days and then QD for 27 days. Um, you had to have the coronavirus plus, um, you had to, um, here we go, uh, you had to have a high risk factor. That's age, diabetes, lung disease, heart disease, CAD, fever, dyspnea, pancytopenia, any risk factor. They wanna see at that point whether you may have a better outcome the primary endpoint is going to be death or hospitalization uh, at, at the end of the month. They expect the results of this to be done by September of 2020. You know, there have been reports in the literature we covered this week about B cells maybe being active, that patients with agammaglobulinemia seem to do well. They have no B cells and no immunoglobulin. They seem to do well. Um, whereas CVID patients with sort of dysfunctional B cells, they didn't do well. They had more severe courses. What about TNF inhibitors? There's a report in Lancet from Mark Feldman and Tiny Maney and colleagues suggesting we should be studying TNF inhibitors in patients with a COVID infection. Look for that report in Lancet. 
And then lastly, Amgen announced yesterday that they're going to be doing studies of Aprimolast, the PDE4 inhibitor in patients with um, COVID infection. As you know, it's approved for use in psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, Bichette's. How this works, it doesn't work very well. It's kind of a mild drug, very safe, works in some people really well, doesn't work in a lot of patients. But, you know, how it works mechanistically, you know, it, it decreases intracellular CAMP, uh, cyclic uh, uh, AMP, but um, does it actually affect cytokine production? I think it actually has a lot of effects on neutrophils and chemotaxis, and that may be one reason why it may work, especially if used early when the innate immune response is kicking in. We'll have to wait and see where that goes. Anyway, I think that our patients are at low risk, and I think they're at low risk because we have them well-controlled. If you look at this uh, uh, graphic by Randy Cron and, and Wynn Chatham from UAB, it suggests that by bolstering their uh, immune response in those with autoimmune disease and controlling their disease, and by you know, doing replacement in those who have immunodeficiencies, you allow your patients to better manage infection. So, um, and maybe they're primed to better manage infection. Maybe that's why we're seeing good outcomes. This is my hypothesis. We need more data. Hopefully our big room registry of COVID patients will tell us more in the future. Anyway, that's it for this week on the Room Now podcast. Go to the website. You can watch this, um, find some of the links that I have in here um, and tune in next week for more information from Room Now. Take care. Have a good week.